we decided to go door to door. We started on my personal house, but then my neighbors door to door asking, would you be interested in this pilot? We're thinking about turning your front lawn into a farm. What is this, Mishkis? It's, it's a square. No, what is this that we're looking at? We're here in the compost. Are you ready to turn the compost? Yeah. Chris Castro and his daughter Coraline are in their garden in Orlando, Florida. What might seem like just a sweet moment between father and daughter is actually far more. Chris is teaching his three-year-old about composting. It's a symbol of the revolutionary work city leaders in Orlando and all over the globe are doing to rebuild better. Cities are no longer waiting for national initiatives to fight climate change. They're rolling up their sleeves and they're doing it themselves, led by visionary environmental leaders like Chris Castro. Orlando is the most visited city in America. Now it's Chris's goal to make it the greenest city in the nation. I'm Yash Pavlik-Slink, and this is Degrees, Real talk about planet-saving careers from Environmental Defense Fund. I'm really excited to share this conversation with Chris Castro. Chris joined the city of Orlando as the Director of Sustainability and Resilience in 2016, but his title doesn't even begin to capture Chris's drive to fight climate change and environmental injustice. In just a few years, he's helped start solar co-ops. He's increased electric vehicle adoption, and he's helped low-income residents invest in clean energy. Chris believes that greening a city doesn't just fight climate change, it also helps communities and families prosper. One of Chris's most exciting initiatives doesn't just reduce the massive carbon footprint of the food that we eat, it also helps end hunger and feed families. It's called fleet farming, and it turns front lawns into working farms. I asked him to describe it. Fair warning, my conversation with Chris is going to completely upend the way that you think about city government forever. Chris, thank you for being here. Welcome to Degrees. Thank you, Yesh. It's great to be here with you. Chris, when I think of Orlando, I think of a bustling city and a famous mouse. I don't think of front lawn farms. What made you even think to turn front lawns in Orlando into farms, like real-life, feed-your-family farms? You know, across this country, there are over 40 million acres of lawns, residential homeowner lawns. And obviously, the industrial agricultural complex has a huge impact on the planet and on public health. And, you know, this notion around fleet farming was how do we start to turn these neighborhoods into assets that can help us achieve our, our food demands. And, um, and so it was really daunting to figure out, well, how do you even go about starting this? Is it legal? Is it, I mean, there's so many questions that we can get into this analysis paralysis mindset, right? Where we may never, ever start anything because questions continue to come up. You're really speaking to me here, Chris. And I imagine a lot of our listeners who want to use their careers to make an impact, to fight climate change. Um, but a lot of people, I think, when facing that uh, that balance of where they want to be and how to get there, they struggle with moments of fear. I, can you talk a little bit about maybe any moments that you've had when uh, it just seemed like it was all insurmountable? Uh, one of my business mentors, his name's Edwin Lovanos, once taught me uh, you know, that in order to start and initiate something, we have to think big 
we have to start small and then we have to focus on scaling fast to make the biggest impact possible. And I brought that same notion to fleet farming. When we were starting out, we decided to go door to door. We started on my personal house, but then my neighbors door to door asking, would you be interested in this pilot? We're thinking about turning your front lawn into a farm and we'll share the food with you, all the food that we grow and the excess food we can take and we can sell to low income farmers markets. And that was the overall vision. And from one house, we grew to five houses. From five houses, we grew to 30 houses. Now there's over a hundred homes that are participating in fleet farming throughout Orlando. And I think uh, the challenge is doing something, initiating the first step and, and getting past that often just mental barrier of whether or not this is going to be successful. People are afraid to fail. And I think it's important for us to fail and fail quick so that we can pivot and continue down this journey of making impact and whatever we're passionate about. Um, you know, little by little, you iterate. Don't be afraid to just start and do and fail and learn from those failures so that you can use those as learnings to be successful. I love that you've given yourself permission to fail and to learn and to try again. One thing that strikes me about your success is that you bring people together, uh, whether it's convincing them to turn their front lawn into a farm or start a project in their community you seem to be a magnet for people who are doers like you. How do you build good teams around you? I think that's a really good question, Yesh. And I, I don't know if I have a specific um, recipe for, for building a team. But, you know, people align with people who are passionate about something. They want, people want to find a tribe. They want to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. Especially now. My mom would definitely be part of that tribe. She is most comfortable in an old t-shirt and shorts. There's dirt forever under her fingernails, and she refuses to call dirt dirt. It's called soil. Gardening or farming can be a pretty solitary endeavor. How do you make your fleet farmers feel like they're part of something bigger? Um, one thing that sets fleet farming apart that's pretty unique is we're very focused on community engagement and getting people experience in where their food comes from. And so one of the events that we host with Fleet Farm is called The Swarm. The Swarm, like Bee Swarm, uh, we basically host a bike ride where everybody comes together at one central location. Usually it starts at East End Market. We all get on our bicycles and we literally swarm around the neighborhood going home to home and teaching people how to grow food while also maintaining these plots that, that these homeowners have turned over to us. And that type of edible education experience is life-changing for people. We've had um, grandparents take their grandkids out and do this as a bonding exercise. We've had parents come out and bond with their kids. And, and, and just an amazing amount, dozens of people every weekend who come out on this experience volunteering their time to learn how to grow food in Florida. And of course, that's not a very easy thing to do. I have this vision of people on bikes with gardening tools strapped to their bodies and a clinking noise following them down the street. Uh, can you tell me the why behind people being familiar with where their food is coming from? You know, what's what's driving you to make that connection for people? So, um I think over the course of you know, hundreds of years, we've we've moved into this kind of industrial agricultural system that really disconnects us from the food system. Right now, every plate of food that a person eats every day 
travels between 1,500 and 2,000 miles per person, per plate, per day. That's absurd. The amount of energy that goes into growing one calorie is a 10 to 1 fossil fuel to food calorie ratio, meaning we put 10 times the amount of energy into growing the food from fossil fuels than we actually get in calories eating the food. And so there's this huge discrepancy, and um, it also contributes significantly to the climate crisis. So the whole notion around fleet farming was to do a number of things. One, inspire and empower people to grow food. Two, hyper-localize food production. It's not enough to be 100 or 200 miles away. It needs to be grown within our communities and hyper-locally. And three, do so on zero-emitting forms of transportation, like bicycles, that help to minimize the direct carbon emissions from food production as well. And that became our why around fleet farming and the overall challenge for us to solve in building this really innovative social enterprise model um, of turning lawns into farms. Now, what stands in the way of people farming in their front yards? I mean, it seems so practical, and we've seen it done successfully. Victory gardens were a huge deal during World War II. What keeps people in every city in America from doing this? So there's there's a couple of different obstacles. As an example, in the city of Orlando, there is no zoned agricultural parcels in the entire city of Orlando. We were one of the first cities to allow for front yard farming, actually edible landscapes in the front yard. Um, uh, 60% of our front yard now can, can be edible and 100% of the side in the back lawn. And in many cities, there are actually cities where people are fined and they're charged for growing fruits and vegetables in their yards. And it's absurd. That is absurd. Frankly, that's an opportunity that's ripe for change. Sorry, I couldn't stop myself from making that terrible joke. But seriously, are there vegetable police walking the streets that I don't know about? Listeners, check your city ordinances and change the law if growing mint on your front lawn is illegal. Okay, Chris, I read somewhere that you were born with green thumbs. Um, When I was growing up in Miami, Florida, um, as a second generation Cuban American, my parents, I was lucky enough to have parents who really um, got me outdoors and and tried to bring nature into my life. My stepdad had a a palm tree nursery and our own family business. And that really gave me a very unique experience in in connecting with the natural world. I actually grew 5,000 what we call Washingtonia palms as part of a a scholarship to get into college. Wow, that is the most unique scholarship I've ever heard of. (laughs) We definitely didn't have that one growing up in Wisconsin. What was that like? So we bought 5,000 seeds and I grew them from seed over a four-year period when I was a freshman in high school all the way until I graduated as a senior. And it gave me this work ethic that I think really has been instilled in just me as a person uh, and has allowed me to chart forward as an entrepreneur in many different ways. And it really dawned on me that if I was going to spend time on something for the rest of my life, that working to protect and preserve and regenerate the environment was something that I felt aligned with. What strikes me is the timing. This was 2007, right before the Great Recession hit. Did you have a moment of doubt where you maybe thought about going into the private sector or uh, putting this dream on hold for a little while? I didn't, actually. I I thought that this is 
uh, one of the ways in which we can get out of this recession. And we were fortunate to uh, be able to elect uh, President Obama, who, as part of their, you know, his recovery approach was driving forward clean energy and sustainability through things like the energy efficiency and conservation block grants and, and really prioritizing uh, moving our economy in a cleaner direction. And, and that helped me actually um, reinforce the decision that I was, I was going down. So you doubled down on your instinct to work on protecting the planet. And then while you were in college, you started this environmental nonprofit called Ideas for Us, which is today an official United Nations NGO with chapters all over the world. This is fascinating, listeners. If you haven't already checked out their website, I highly recommend. There's a chapter in Uganda working on renewable energy solutions. Then there's one in the Congo planting trees. So many chapters around the world where students are coming up with their own creative local solutions to environmental challenges. Chris, when you started this group, did you have any idea that it would get this big? Never. We were just thinking, let's bring together this interdisciplinary student group that that tries to come up not just with campaigns that we can advocate against or for, but actual solutions, projects that we could implement on our own accord and in partnership with the university that would actually start to move the needle. Uh, one of the first campaigns we did was um, actually put pressure on the president of UCF to commit to carbon neutrality. And we ended up passing a student referendum where over 80% of the population said, yes, this is important for our future. And I remember the president, President Hitt said, okay, Chris, we've made this commitment. What do we do next? And that's where ideas for us really took hold. It became this organization that was the, the think tank and do tank for achieving carbon neutrality and moving UCF in a more sustainable direction. So we did things like we started a dorm room energy competition called Kill a Watt. And it was having students compete just through behavioral changes on saving energy and providing scholarships for those students in those facilities that actually showed significant savings. We ended up getting the attention of Secretary Stephen Chu and even the White House solicited a press release about students who were, you know, working together to save energy. We ended up starting recycling programs in the dorms and, and throughout campus. We started the on-campus garden. We even wrote a $750,000 grant that we were awarded to add 107 kilowatts of solar PV on campus. And so students got to get experience in writing the grant and actually designing the system and putting a hard hat on and installing the panels, uh, which was tremendous. And so, yeah, it, it became this sustainability firm on campus that was driven by students to accelerate this work. Chris, it's kind of a stereotype that city government isn't creative, um, and you've brought a lot of innovation to the mayor's office and to all of your projects. Um, what obstacles have you faced trying to make those really wild ideas happen, and um, and how do you inspire a, a big government agency to move in wild, exciting, creative ways? Um, one of the biggest opportunities we have is what I like to call intrapreneurship, this notion around um, getting into an existing organization or institution and trying to 
change it in a direction that moves towards sustainability through creative business models, through creative policies or programs that may, may be implemented. And I think what we're going to see more often than not is individuals who have knowledge in sustainability getting into a corporation or getting into a local government and using that experience to bring about change from the inside. That's entrepreneurship. Um, you've chosen a mission-driven career along every step of the way. You've uh, really focused on that mission. You focused on that passion. What are the upsides of that and what are the downsides? Um, well, the upsides are, especially if, if the passion is around um, you know, the triple bottom line and moving towards a sustainable future, there are so many areas that one could put their skills and talents to advance, right? It's not just engineers. It's not just environmental scientists. It's literally every single discipline possible uh, that we can imagine that, uh, that needs to be a part of this transformation. And so, um, you know, for me, being mission-led, I think, has aligned my core values and the person who I am with the work that I do every day. And that has, um, for better or worse, again, um, transitioned this from the work that I do to the person that I am, right? It's become who I am. And um, that, so on the upside is I don't know when I'm working and when I'm playing ever. I'm, I'm constantly doing this on weekends, on nights. Um, and then on the, on the downside, I also don't know when to stop. I hear you. It's a problem I experience. It's a problem I think a lot of our listeners experience. There is too much to do in the day and not enough hours, especially when we're running against the clock on climate change. It feels, everything feels so pressing. You know, I early on with Ideas for Us was just infatuated by its potential and put so much time into the organization uh, that I, I, I forgot about some of my friends, some of the important people who have been there for me uh, around the clock and and also some of the people who I loved, you know, some my, my partners. And uh, there have been cases where I've lost friends and I've lost loved ones because um, maybe not directly because of ideas for us, but be, because I didn't quite find that work-life balance. And it's something that I continue to work through every single day. I've been fortunate to find a partner who supports me in the work that I do and understands the importance that I have, um, that, that I'm working towards. Uh, well, I can tell you personally, I am married to someone with an entrepreneurial spirit, and this is something we work on every day. It is not easy. Uh, so this is my official pitch to the producers of How I Built This. Please start asking these famous entrepreneurs how they manage their work-life balance and how specifically they maintain their personal relationships while they're making these big impacts on our society. Um, that's a, sometimes could be a challenge when you're trying to balance work-life balance and your family and raising my daughter and really being attentive to her in these early stages of, of her life. Um, and so I've, I'm trying to do better at finding what that balance looks like. And one way I've, I've been doing that is integrating our activities um, that we do together as it relates to sustainability. So gardening, as an example, or going on bike rides together and, and to um, you know, give her those types of experiences that, that make me happy, that align with the mission that, that I'm on, but also allow me to spend some meaningful time with, with my family. And I know from an earlier conversation that your daughter Coraline has become your favorite gardening buddy. She might even be the youngest fleet farmer. She is three years old and she pulls me every single day when she gets home 
pulls me to the back door and says, let's go to the jardin, papi. What is this, Mishkis? It's, it's a square. No, what is this that we're looking at? So she's like all about going into the garden. She loves tomatoes. It's her favorite fruit for sure. And and just her um, getting engaged in the soil, getting dirty, getting uh, you know involved in nature is something that I feel is going to be critical in her upbringing. And I want to do everything I possibly can the way that my parents did to make sure that she values the natural world and isn't disconnected the way that many of us are, but really embraces it, values it, and, and understands our place in it. In our last couple of minutes, I just want to ask you what advice you would give. And this could be to your younger self or to uh, people who are starting out on their sustainability career journey now um, in a very similar situation to where you were back in 2008 facing a recession. What would you tell them? What would you tell yourself back then? Get as much experience as you possibly can get. Hands-on experiential learning by far is the most important thing. Most of the work that I've done in the last 15 years has been voluntary. And I think that it's important for us to get experience, especially in areas that you may or may not be you know, strong in. And it sounds like if the opportunities aren't available because of COVID, uh, to make your own opportunities, knock on people's doors, ask them what help they need, and really go after those experiences to make your own progress to get that that leg up. Exactly. And, and just start. Do something. Fail fast. You know, think big, start small, scale fast, as we talked about. Chris, you said before that someone passionate about this work doesn't have to do what you did. They don't have to start a nonprofit or a company that they can find opportunities within their own organizations, within their own jobs, within their own cities to change it from within. You know, that was the mindset that I had when I got into the city of Orlando. I had already started a, a company, Citizen Energy, that was doing clean energy consulting in commercial and multifamily businesses. I, we were already very engaged in ideas for us. And I thought that if I was going to impact my community, there was nothing better than for me to join Mayor Dyer's team and try to figure out the strategy of moving Orlando, the most visited city in America, moving Orlando to be a model for, for sustainability. Uh, I was not expecting you to say that. And and frankly, my vision or my understanding of Orlando is shifting in this conversation, can you share a few more examples of what you've done to move Orlando in that direction? Um, we've started these solar co-ops, these uh, essentially group buying programs that allows residents to access more affordable solar by buying together, essentially bulk purchase aggregation. And then we have this backyard composter initiative. Every resident in Orlando has access to get a free 80-gallon composter, not only assembled, but delivered to their door. And the way that we've been able to essentially pay for that and offer that service is by avoiding the tip fee at the landfill. And so if we can educate enough people to use their compost bin to dispose of their organics versus the trash bin, then we can actually save taxpayer dollars. And we started to do the calculations and realize, man, if we can buy these compost bins in bulk, we can more than save the amount that we're going to spend in tipping, right? And so now we have over 8,000 households in Orlando composting in their backyards, diverting food waste and food scraps so that they can create soils and hopefully grow food in their own gardens, right? What did you put in there? 
Food scraps. Food scraps. Okay, what type of food scraps? Food scraps. Food scraps, okay. And they use that for their front yard garden that we've enabled as well and had this whole system. These are innovative aspects, but again, it's going to take innovation to drive forward the sustainable future we're all going towards. And, and hopefully that gives you some examples of things that, that we're starting to do in Orlando. Do this. All right, now let Papi turn the compost, okay? Okay, I'll go with it. Uno, dos, what do you uh, What do you hope for Coraline's future? Well, I hope that um, I hope that we truly begin to address uh, a lot of the inequities and the injustices that we're seeing around this country. I want her to grow up in a future where everybody actually is free and everybody actually is equal in this country. And we uh, realize that that is not the case, especially for those uh, communities of color. I also hope that we truly turn, uh, turn us around as it relates to the climate crisis and, and really do everything we possibly can to keep our temperature rise below the 1.5 degree uh, and, and do everything that we can to accelerate a cleaner and healthier future. Chris, thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Yesh. That's our show for today. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Degrees. For more about how Chris Castro and Mayor Buddy Dyer are working to turn Orlando into a model for sustainability for the rest of the country, see our show notes. If our message resonates with you, please share this podcast with a friend and ask them to subscribe. That's the best way to support our show. And please write a review. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Follow me on Twitter at Yesh Says, and we're online at DegreesPodcast.org. That's DegreesPodcast.org. We'd love to hear your thoughts and questions about the show. Degrees is presented by Environmental Defense Fund. Our producers are Rick Fallou and Amy Morse. Our executive producer is Christina Mestre. Our production company is Podcast Allies with Elaine Appleton-Grant and Lindsay O'Connor. Engineering by Matthew Simonson. Music editing by Becky Page. Our theme music was written and performed by Lake Street Dive. Tune in to our next conversation. I'm your host, Yash Pavlik Slink. Stay fired up, y'all. <laughs>